I know that many of you are devoted fans of the Oregon Ducks, and I know that some of you are devoted fans of the Oregon State Beavers. Well, yeah. (laughs) I grew up in a family where my dad and my mom and my uncle all went to UCLA. So I was raised as a passionate fan of the Bruins. And because of that, I know a lot of Bruin history. Back in the 1970s, UCLA had a football coach named Pepper Rogers. And to take that job, he had to move from Kansas to Los Angeles. That's a huge move. And anyone who's moved across country knows how disorienting that can be. Moving is a time of disruption, and it can lead to a period of loneliness as you navigate your way around your new community and make new friends and get settled in. That's a challenge for anyone. But for Rogers, all of the normal challenges of moving were compounded by taking a high-profile coaching job, which put him under the microscope. And his first year at UCLA was a disaster. The team only won two games. So it wasn't long before the fans went after him and the media went after him and the alumni went after him. Things got so bad that even some of his friends stopped talking to him. And by the way, all of that is a sign that sometimes we take sports way too seriously. But it was a year in which Rogers felt a great deal of loneliness. Far from family isolated from friends, trying to figure out how to do life in L.A., and under attack consistently in public. At the end of that year, a reporter asked him how he had endured it. And he said, thank goodness for my dog. (laughs) My dog was my only true friend. I told my wife, though, that every man needs at least two good friends, so she went out and bought me another dog. (laughs) I guess that's one way to deal with loneliness. And we don't all experience loneliness in the same way, and we don't all deal with loneliness in the same way. But we all know what it is to be lonely. And loneliness may hit us at Christmas time as we remember loved ones who no longer are with us. We may be lonely throughout the entire year because because we might have scores of online friends through social media. And yet in reality, we have few actual friends. And sometimes we're lonely because we're in a strange place far from family and friends, and and we just feel adrift and isolated. We actually can be in the middle of a crowd of people and yet still can feel disconnected and lonely. I've experienced that a few times in my life, and I'll bet you have as well. I think that's the kind of loneliness that Joseph and Mary experienced on the night Jesus was born. They were in the crowded town of Bethlehem, but the crowd was not there for them. They were not surrounded by family and friends, so they were alone and lonely. Yet God was with them. God was directing their steps. And we can learn something profound from them because their experience of loneliness did not prevent them from experiencing God. 
that's a great lesson for us to learn. So let's listen to this story recorded for us in the book of Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. And as we listen, let's watch the story on the screen. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken in the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was a governor in Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph and Osa went to the town of Nazareth and Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her first son. She wrapped him in clothes and put him in a (coughs) master's because there was no guest rooms available for them. Thank you. It's a simple story, but it's a fascinating story. And one fascinating aspect of this story is that it highlights a tension that exists. There's a tension between God's care for us as individuals and God's care for all humanity. And if we're honest, here's how we often think. We think God wants to bless us in order to make our lives comfortable. But you know what? Our comfort is not always God's primary concern. And when necessary, God will make us uncomfortable in order to accomplish his purposes for the world. And we see that very clearly in this story, and in particular with Caesar's very disruptive decree that begins this story in verses 1 to 3. Begins with Caesar ordering this census. Now, The census in Rome was nothing like the census that we take here in the U.S. We count people to determine the size of legislative districts. Caesar wants to to count people to reduce tax avoidance. (laughs) He wants to make sure everybody is paying. And so in response to his edict, everyone must go to their ancestral home and register on the tax rolls. And this decree is a massive intrusion into the lives of people all over the empire. They need to interrupt their work and their family life and their personal plans. And many people must undertake the difficulty and expense of travel. That's what Joseph has to do because he lives in Nazareth, but he must register in Bethlehem. And so this census costs people time and money. And yet we will not grasp the essence of this story unless we recognize who actually is behind the edict. It's not Caesar. It's God. You see, this disruptive decree really is a divine interruption. And we know that from various prophecies in the Old Testament, but in particular, one from the Old Testament book of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. And there's a prophecy that the Messiah will come from Bethlehem. God's giving the world a preview, a hint. Watch Bethlehem, because that's where the Son of God will come from. And now hundreds of years after Micah, that prophecy is coming true. And Caesar Augustus, oh, he thinks he's in charge. 
He's the one who dreamed up the census. But I'm convinced that God prodded him to do it. And as a result, all over the Roman Empire, people are changing their plans so God can get Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem where Jesus must be born. So as we continue on in the story, looking at verses 4 and 5, we see Joseph and Mary head off. And they're not the only ones. Many other people do the same thing. And yet this massive temporary migration of all kinds of people raises a logical question. Why didn't God do this in a more simple way? Why did he disrupt so many people? Let's remember, he already had spoken to both Mary and Joseph through the angel Gabriel, and they'd already shown that they were willing to trust the words from Gabriel as the message of God and do whatever Gabriel said. And therefore, it would have been very easy for Gabriel to say, hey, by the way, (laughs) pack your bags and go to Bethlehem for the birth. And it only would have affected one couple. Gabriel didn't do that. This means God wanted his son to be born in a village that was overcrowded because of Caesar's decree. He wanted his son to be born in a place where no decent lodging could be found. He wanted his son to be born in a manger. He wanted the arrival of his son in this world to be incredibly humble. And by doing so, God models for us the importance of humility. The humility that we need to have in our lives so we understand that life is not only all about us. The world does not revolve around my preferences and my priorities and my comfort, nor yours. And so God, to accomplish his purposes... He disrupts the entire Roman Empire. And he creates a situation where Joseph and Mary will be inconvenienced and uncomfortable and even lonely. And for them, it starts with this lonely journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Let's take a minute and think about how we travel today and what kinds of inconveniences we might face. If we travel by air, it might be the inconvenience of the long line to get through security. Or maybe a delayed flight that keeps us hanging out in the airport longer than we'd like. If we're traveling by road, it might be a traffic jam or just battling inclement weather. And the next time you and I experience such things, let's reflect on the journey that Joseph and Mary made. Because it will keep our situation in so much better perspective. You see, our inconveniences would be a luxury to them. They only have to go about 90 miles, but Joseph probably walks the entire way, most likely leading a donkey that Mary is riding. And they don't travel on a highway. It's a meandering dirt road that goes up and down and up and down over many hills. They have to cross a desert. There are no motels, no restaurants. There's no Dutch brothers to give them that caffeine jolt in the morning and get them going. They carry their food with them and they camp out at night. 
And they would travel slowly with many stops because of Mary's pregnancy. And they're on the road for at least seven and perhaps as many as ten days. It's a lot of hassle. They might feel it was worth it if it was a voluntary trip with the expectation of, oh, when we arrive, we're going to see family and friends and have a celebration. But this is not a trip they wanted to make. It's a mandatory trip that simply must be endured. It is a long, tiring, lonely journey. And when they finally reach their destination and arrive in Bethlehem, their problems don't end because they find themselves alone and adrift in the midst of a crowd. And Luke summarizes that for us at the end of verse 7 when he says there was no guest room available for them. I find it fascinating the way Luke summarizes this story. He really saves in some way the most poignant detail for last. It's like this punchline at the end of his account because he wants it to hit us that there was no guest room available for the parents of the Messiah. And as we think about how that might have impacted Joseph and Mary, let's think about how we feel after a long trip. We we arrive at our destination, and all we want is a decent place to, to clean up and rest and relax. And Joseph and Mary don't have those options because all of the accommodations are taken. Bethlehem only is a small town, but it is the city of David, which means that everyone who is a descendant of David, like Joseph, has made this same trip. And the town simply cannot handle this huge influx of visitors. Bethlehem only has one inn. And inns at that time typically only had a handful of indoor rooms, and then they'd have a number of outdoor stalls where people could camp out. Joseph and Mary have traveled so slowly that others have reached town before them. And they've taken all the space. Can you imagine how heartbreaking that would be for two tired people? How heartbreaking that would be for a woman in the advanced stages of pregnancy. And they're not only tired and searching for shelter, but they're on their own. They're surrounded by people, but none of those people are there for them. Those people are dealing with their own issues of inconvenience and disruption. Joseph and Mary likely feel all alone in the midst of that crowd. And I suspect they might even feel a sense of despair. What can they do? We're not given a lot of details, so we only can hypothesize, but I think it's likely they just go house to house and door to door asking for someone to rent them a room. People in Bethlehem would be happy to rent out a guest room and make a few extra bucks. But at every door, they would be turned away because all the guest rooms are taken. And I just picture them house to house, door to door, getting repeated answers, sorry, no space, sorry, no space. And I can imagine the weariness of body and spirit as they search for shelter. And somehow, someway, they eventually find space in, in some kind of stable. And it might be a small wooden structure behind someone's house or maybe something out in a pasture. And inside they discover a feeding trough that they can use as a cradle for their baby. It's certainly not ideal. 
And yet this is what God provided. This evidently is what God wants for them and for their son. This is what God wants for his son. And so we have this amazing picture. They're very much alone, but God clearly hasn't abandoned them. He's brought them to this place. And soon the Son of God will be with them, and he will comfort them personally with his presence, as Luke writes for us here in verses 6 and 7. When the time came and the baby was born, she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in the manger. Every time I read this, I marvel at the fact that when God arrives in person, he shows up as a helpless baby born to poor parents who need to use an animal trough as a cradle. And even more amazing to me is this. By showing up as an infant, God the Father chooses to make God the Son dependent on human beings. The Creator makes himself dependent on his creation. To me, that's mind-boggling. Because of the way God has laid this out, his son arrives in lowly, humble circumstances. And we need to remember, this is God we're talking about. He easily could have arranged for Jesus to be born in a well-lit, warm, beautiful home surrounded by well-wishers. And he didn't do it that way. No one is present at the birth but Mary and Joseph. Mary even has to wrap the baby herself because there's no midwife to help her. That's almost unheard of at that time. This couple really is alone. Can you imagine how they must feel? No family, no friends, far from home, in less than desirable circumstances, delivering a baby without help. But God is with them throughout this entire experience. He's the one who gets them to Bethlehem. He provides them with shelter. And then he shows up personally in the form of this baby, the promised Messiah. And I picture that moment when Mary, for the first time, takes the baby Jesus into her arms. And I've seen a lot of women hold their baby. And in that first snuggle, it is amazing to see the pain of childbirth fall away. Any other anguish or heartache for Mary, the loneliness, the toughness of the journey, none of that matters because here is my son. In that moment, all there is is love and joy for this baby. And her joy would be compounded because she knows this particular child is a God-ordained miracle. She's never even been physically intimate with a man, and yet here is her firstborn son. The God who will bring salvation to the world. There is great joy for Joseph and Mary in this moment. Yet it occurs to me that they only get to experience the profound joy of this moment because they willingly embraced God's plan for their lives. They accepted the interruptions and they accepted the hardships and they accepted the loneliness. And at the end of the journey, God gives them Jesus. 
and his arrival is a comforting reminder that God fulfills his promises. And yes, it's true, other people may not be present to celebrate this moment with them, but God is with them. He is with them in spirit, and he now is with them in person. God has met them in their moment of loneliness. And just as God sustained them, I'm convinced that he can and he will sustain us. And in those moments when we are lonely, that is not the time to turn inward. That's the time to look to God and lean on God and trust God. And he may not prevent our loneliness, but he will meet us in our loneliness. And we can experience his presence. That is the blessing God's great love for his children. And yet even with all of that, God's story never is just about us as individuals. There's always a bigger story going on, and that becomes clear when we step back and we look at the bigger picture of Christmas. You see, at the heart of the very first Christmas, God is making a very important point. He is in charge, not Caesar. At the time that Jesus arrived, Caesar Augustus was one of the most powerful men in the world. He had unified the Roman Empire and he had brought peace to people. The empire was living in splendor and in peace. And Caesar was so full of himself that he actually built an altar of himself. And he asked that the people come and worship him as a god, calling him the Prince of Peace. Think about that. And then listen to these words from the prophet Isaiah, written some 700 years before Jesus. Isaiah wrote, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace of the greatness of his government and peace. There will be no end. Isaiah tells tells us that Jesus, not Caesar, is the true prince of peace. Jesus, not Caesar, is the one that we worship. Jesus, not Caesar, is the one, the only one, who can build a lasting kingdom. Lasting peace never, ever comes from human rulers. It only comes from God. And our God wants us to understand that the gift of peace does not originate on a throne throne in Rome. And it doesn't originate with government officials and politicians in Washington, D.C. Peace originates in a humble major in the tiny village of Bethlehem on the day of Jesus' birth. So as I said, this story is operating on many levels. On one level, it's a very human story, a story of a census and a journey in loneliness and the birth of a baby. But on another level, it is describing a profound spiritual battle, a battle between a ruler who is a self-proclaimed prince of peace and God's son, Jesus Christ, who is the one and only eternal prince of peace. 
and we know who wins that battle. Caesar didn't. He died. The Roman Empire died. All human governments eventually fade away, but Jesus lives and his church continues to survive and thrive in every nation on earth because he is the Prince of Peace, offering his peace to all mankind. If we listen to him, if we take him seriously, and if we trust him, and we follow wherever he leads us, that's how we get to peace. And when we understand what God was up to in this, then this brief season of inconvenience and, and loneliness for Joseph and Mary pales in comparison because nothing was and nothing is more important than the world's need for Jesus, the Prince of Peace. So God did not spare Joseph and Mary from loneliness. But he did sustain them in the midst of their loneliness. we can grasp this and we have gained a vital insight into the character and the nature of our God. He is with us in the midst of our own journeys yet the story never is only and just about us. The overarching story always is about Jesus, the one who comes to rescue us from ourselves, to rescue us from our worst impulses so we can live in peace. Peace with God peace with others. This experience that Mary and Joseph went through reminds us that that people of faith are not exempt from the hardships of life. There will be moments when we're disillusioned or disappointed or lonely. Those experiences, though, do not prevent us from experiencing God. The rich message of Christmas is that God wants to be with you and be with me in the midst of all of our experiences, both good and bad. And how wonderful to realize that this baby in the manger grew up to become our Prince of Peace. And so whatever you are feeling this Christmas, whatever you are experiencing this Christmas, Invite Jesus to help you experience his peace. Be at peace. At peace with God. At peace with others. That is the great gift of Christmas.